0: came across a story this week, and forgive me if you 've heard it before about the Wright brothers, the two famous brothers who pioneered aviation and flight technology. It was one thousand nine hundred and three when they were trying to get their first plane off the ground. It was pretty near christmas time and on their this day in December on the, something like their fifth attempt, they managed to get an aircraft airborne for I think it was about 12 seconds. might have been 12 minutes. it wasn 't very long compared to flights you would get today. And they decided to telegram was the technology of the day, the early 1900s, and they decided to telegram their sister from North Carolina and to say, "You know it 's got to be short and sweet, to telegram, so it 's near Christmas, and they say, "Manage to get flight for 12 seconds. We will be home for Christmas." It was done. So their sister picked up the telegram and she ran to the editor of the local newspaper, the town newspaper, and she said, the Wright brothers, my brothers, have managed to get a flight airborne, you probably want to do a story on it, they'll be home at Christmas time, you can sit down with them, get an interview, and the editor said, yes, yes, very well, I'll, uh, I'll, that's, I'll catch up with them and I'll get them. Anyway, headline, newspaper, next week, Wright brothers, home for Christmas. Great exercise in missing the point. And as we come to Acts and to the Gospel, I want to do a short series on basically evangelism, on sharing faith, on how we see it being done in the early church. And I think sometimes we can lift things from the likes of Acts in the early church and say this should be the paradigm for all times and all places. And we need to be careful if we're doing that, but. One reason I think this is worth doing is I think the world that we're now emerging into, we've had a lot of focus this year between different things like uh, growing Claremont and the meetings we've had on Sunday. We're trying to become more aware of the fact that we're living in a world that's changing, particularly in the West, in our culture. The sands are kind of shifting underneath our feet. The things that we presumed everyone took for granted and knew even just a decade or two ago are not the case anymore. And in that, I think we're becoming much more like the church, the early church in the time of Acts. I think that we're now in a situation where... There's a lot of different views and ideas on what's true, perhaps even what God is. No one of them can claim a monopoly in the public square, and that's kind of the situation that the early believers find themselves in Acts. There's a lot of competing ideas for what truth is, and they all kind of coexist. There's also an awful lot of idolatry. And that takes a whole bunch of different forms. And while our culture today doesn't bow down to images of wood and stone, it does bow down to star signs. It does bow down to, more broadly, the culture of of sexuality and, and, and sex as God and how you express that. I would say it bows down to the Enneagram. Have any of you heard of that? personality test it's you it's rife, and lots of people are finding a lot of uh, st- solace and strength and hope in that, but to the point where it 's like i 'm an Enneagram one or two, and that 's kind of what I make my god that 's what I base my life on there's a lot of things that compete for people 's attention and in the midst of all of that, you and I are called to have the light of the gospel and all its purity in all its light in all its truth and It confronts all those other ideas about what is true and what is ultimately right. And that's why I wanted to focus on how this plays out in the early church. But in order to do that, we need to start with, well, what is the the non-negotiables? It's pretty hard to share something that you're not really sure exactly what it is in its essence. Um, It's like it reminds me of when Finlay comes to me and he asks me things like, He's asked me some real zingers over the years. But um, the one that always sticks in my mind is he asks me, Dad, what is a question? (laughs) I don't know where to start. You know, you think, I'm fairly clever, but I'm not that clever. I can't explain... But the gospel isn't like that. We can explain what the gospel is. We can get to know what the gospel is and its essence. And friends, that's where we need to start. If we're going to think about how we're going to share it, how we're going to be effective in getting it across to others, we really need to drill down on what it is. And I think this passage in Acts 1, Jesus' charge to his disciples, lays that out beautifully. It comes as a two-parter. Luke starts Acts, meaning carrying on as as he started as he means to go on. He explained in his gospel the Acts of Jesus. And then some people have rightly called Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Or another way of thinking about it is, this is how Jesus continues to work in the church, even though he's now ascended. He's powerfully at work throughout the book of Acts, and Luke's wanting to give us an account of that. In some sense, he's going... Luke, Gospel of Luke, this is how Jesus uh, founded and spread the church while he's on earth. This is how he's doing it now that he's ascended to heaven. And we learn a lot about evangelism from that. This context, there's lots of ways to get bogged down in the details on the ascension and what did it mean and what sort of flight path did Jesus take to heaven and none of those things are Luke's concern. I personally think that the ascension is something so... Worldly and beyond the comprehension of, of the, the original witnesses and the writers, they're definitely using pictorial images um, to describe it the best way that they can. What is really important is the charge here that Jesus gives to his disciples. And specifically, I want to think about this morning, the way he tells them they will be their wit- the witnesses to the ends of the earth. The overlap that has with the great commission, you know, at the end of Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's such a well-known phrase, but it overlaps with this one nicely. We want to be witnesses. Now, in case, and I've, I've prejudged that there could be some objections, because there was a question I had that I originally came to this text with, where he says, you will be my witnesses. You might be thinking, you, does that mean it was just for the 11 who are gathered here, the disciples minus Judas? Is that really for you and me? I think the rest, and I hope to unpack this in this morning's sermon, I think the rest of Acts shows it's definitely for people who are beyond this group of disciples. Because it's about the church spreading. And lots of ordinary people throughout the gospel uh, sorry throughout the book of Acts do this. they witness to the power of Jesus. not only that, but Jesus has the promise in the Great commission. go and make disciples of all nations, keep doing this, keep replicating yourselves, and then he says, "I am with you always now i 'm sure. Christians among you, if I said to you, do you believe that God is really present with you today? Do you believe that promise is for you, that God is still with you today as much as he is with the disciples? I think you would want to say yes, of course, that's part of being a Christian. I have relationship and fellowship with Jesus, with God. He's with me. I know he's with me. I pray to him and I know that he encourages me and helps me. So if you want to take that part of that statement, I'm with you always, it's completely bound and connected to go and make disciples. We can't split them apart. And so if we want to be under God's promises, if we want to take his word seriously, that's kind of a non-negotiable, that will go and make disciples. That we'll, and that starts with telling people the good news. They, they can't become disciples unless they know what they're being brought into. So, so I want to look at three things from this text. Firstly, I want to look at witnessing to the facts of Jesus's life and the fact that we find the gospel there in basic hard facts about Jesus that are non-negotiable. Secondly, witnessing to his saving power, and thirdly and lastly, witnessing to the ends of the earth. These three things I hope to bring out from the text. As God helps us by His Spirit, He tells them that they're going to be His witnesses. What does that mean? The term witness has a lot of baggage. It means, we can think it means that you just saw something. The term used here in Greek is a legal term, as so much of New Testament language is. And it's the way we would think of it in its most formal sense today, a witness to a crime. Same idea, that's where it comes from. The the word was used for people who could stand up in a court of law and say that not only that they saw something... But that they could describe it so credibly that it could lead to a solid and sound conviction of somebody. And so it's a bit more than just seeing something. It's seeing something to the point where you could then give evidence. And it's connected to the fact that, well, what's Jesus saying you're witnesses to? You're my witnesses. He's claiming them as witnesses to himself. They're the people who have seen his life up close. They've seen the basic facts of the, fact of the nature of his virgin birth, his deity, the fact that he clearly was God, that he lived a perfect sinless life, that he then died in the place of sinners. He died the executioner's death, the one that was prophesied and promised from the Old Testament. And on the third day, he was raised again to life by the power of God, And then he's just about to ascend and complete that entire sweep of what is really basic to the gospel. And I'm not just making this up. This is what Paul says is essential. Is that what he he received, he passed on as the most essential basic part of the tradition. That Christ died died and was buried and raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, according to God's plan. Those are the basic non-negotiable facts. Christianity at its core is not... A myth. It's not in the same category as Aesop's fables or other great cultural stories. You know, there are different kinds of writing within the Bible, and sometimes we're just not sensitive enough to that. There are some things that are not meant to be historical fact, or Christians who love Jesus can sit down and disagree and debate that whether they're historical fact. Things like, for example, the Age of time that's meant by the word day in the book of Genesis 1. On the first day, God created heaven, and so on. Good Christians who love the Lord can disagree over whether that's literally 24 hours or a longer period of time. And we're not messing around with the basic facts of the gospel by doing that. Whether Jesus really came and was born of a virgin and what we're going to confess in our faith later and died and was raised again in the place of sinners to save them from God's judgment, that is non negotiable. If we say that that's actually symbolic or Jesus was just a good example for how to live a good life, we're categorically not a Christian anymore. That's not popular, that sounds very narrow and exclusive. I've said it before, Jesus says that his way, the the way of Christ to salvation is, by definition, narrow. It's not everything. It's not any idea that we can tag on to it about religion. It's a gospel of basic historical facts. And that's backed up by the fact that Luke makes very clear that's what I'm trying to get across to you. In my former book, I wrote about everything Jesus began to do and teach. And now he's going into, this is the facts. I'm producing for you a careful record of what is literal fact or d- demonstrable fact. You can check other sources about how he continues to build his church in the early first century world. So it's not everything. Well, what does this mean that the gospel is not Well, the gospel, it's a word that lots of things get brought into it and it can get entangled with lots of different ideas. But we're basically witnessing to these facts about Jesus. And notice how the disciples in the text and their question to him is, Lord, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And, And he deliberately rebukes them. He says, it's not for you to know those times. So he's refutes their speculation and what they want to look into. And he says, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. And so the gospel, you know, the Father sends the Son to save us, and it's through the power of the Spirit that people come to believe in Christ and then build the church. And you will be my witnesses throughout all the earth, witnesses to my life and my death and my burial and resurrection. And so initially in the text we see the gospel is... He's trying to get them away from, don't sit around speculating about when the end will come and if, let's think of what we think about today, if the stuff in Revelation is real and if it has to happen in a sequence of events and can we connect some of it to what's happening in Russia. He's essentially saying that's all a waste of time. That's not the gospel and you're not going to make any disciples by sitting around with charts and trying to figure out when the end is going to be. Neither is the gospel any of our perhaps pet things that we really want to focus on, even our social concerns, which flow out of the gospel, don't get me wrong. The gospel should so transform us that then we are deeply concerned for the needs of our neighbor, our fellow brothers and sisters, and the world around us. But those things are not the gospel. They are not what we've been asked to witness to and then to proclaim that people might find life in God. And I think for us it's worth pondering over and meditating over those facts, you know, um, when you read through the Psalms, you can't be struck by how David just encourages us to sit and think about, chew over the truth of who God is and, and what he's done, what he's done for us. I'd like to challenge you this week, if I may, to spend some time and I don't know if you ever do this. Sometimes you, you've got a lot of time on your own and some thinking time, and you sit and you, you have maybe imaginary conversations with uh, other people. Maybe it's somebody you would really want to have a go at and go see when I get to catch up with them. This is what I'd say, and then I'd say this, and obviously I've been there and I've done that. Um, and there's a more productive and there's a redemptive way of using that time of to chewing over the facts of the gospel. As Gordon was uh, pointing to the wonder Of in our prayer, that He really did come, and sometimes I sit on that, and it it strikes me. I, I preach the gospel often, and sometimes it really just hits me when I sit and think about it. He really did come and live in flesh and blood, and and die on a cross. Personally, for me in a transaction, which means that I'm now right with God because Jesus lived in the same space, time, history, world that you and I live in, in places that you can find on a map and even you see news reports from today on the BBC News in Israel. He he did it there, and and he did it for you, if you're one of his people. That's worth thinking over. Because sitting and really letting the truth of it sink down, and then you start to see other truths, like, well, why was that? Why did he have to die so awful a death? The depths of my sin. Because I have so offended a holy God that that was necessary. And then not only the horror of that, but then the comfort. How much must he love me in order to do that? And when you let that sink in and the weight of it kind of sits in you... That's actually an essential step to sharing these facts with anyone else because, let me tell you, I don't think the world is going to be changed or the gospel is going to spread by us being able to browbeat other people with better facts. It's important to be able to see that, and there's lots of good evidence that this stuff really happened and that the gospels are an accurate historical record and all that is important in Christianity. But you know, it's that he's transformed our hearts as well as our heads. And when you let those truths weigh on you and they sink in, that's actually essential and it's important and it also makes it possible that you're going to want to share that with someone else. Because you felt the weight of it and then you felt the joy of it. God lifting off the burden of your sin, Him promising His fellowship with you forever, meditating over those basic facts, in such a way so that then you could pass them on. If someone asked you, as Peter puts it, what's the reason for the hope that is in you? Why are you so joyful? Why do you have hope when so much of our world just seems to be filled with despair and gloom? Well, let me tell you, I know Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we can be intimidated by thinking we just... We don't know everything. We don't know enough of the facts. Do you know that God made the world and made men, and he made them to worship him, but they haven't done that? And you and me and all of us have made mistakes and sinned, and we deserve his judgment, but God sent Jesus in order that we might not have to take that judgment. He took it for us, and he's now actually defeated death by being raised to life again. Do you know those facts? If you know those facts, you are able to share the gospel with someone. You are able to give them a message that could transform their lives. And let me just tag on to it, the fact that God promises you will be empowered by his spirit to do it. I think sometimes we can feel, but I'm weak. Well, you know, join the club. I'm not great at this. I'm not an expert. But I have God's Spirit living within me, and I have this promise. Do we believe this promise? He will give you power to do it. You and I live in the same church that was formed in Acts. You know, they're asking all these questions about times. When's this going to happen? When are you going to restore the kingdom? And essentially, Jesus boils it down to there's only really two big events that you need to figure out the timeline of. I've come. And I've lived and I've died and now I'm ascending. And one day I'm going to come back. That was at the end of our passage. The angels tell him he will come back the same way you've seen him. You have seen him go into heaven. The point is, is that everything in between is the church and is our commission and our command and is where we exist to share the truths of the gospel. And so we exist in the same age as The minute he, Jesus went back to heaven, that was it. He launched the. Trigger. He pulled the trigger on the church and on this age of gospel growth. And it's the same one that you and I exist in. And so by extension, we have the same Holy Spirit that was promised to them that came at Pentecost to empower you and me to share those basic facts with anyone who might ask. You know a really scary thing that we can do is to pray to the Lord to, who, has, who is the Spirit and to say, God, give me the opportunity to share a few of those facts with someone. Dangerous prayer, but a worthwhile prayer. I think a very faithful prayer. Especially if we've let these truths so sit in our hearts to the point that we just think, wouldn't it be amazing if somebody else had this news? Somebody who I love, somebody who I don't love, someone who's my enemy and needs it, I think, as much as anyone. Meditating on the facts and then having the courage that this same spirit that Jesus promised is witnessing through us. That's the essentials of the gospel is in this passage, witnessing to the facts of Jesus' life and what he came to do. And they're so basic, but they're so powerful. And then secondly, as well as witnessing to the facts, it's witnessing to the saving power of God. And the gospel is not less than a collection of facts, okay? It, it is in its essence, it, but it's much more than that. And so I don't want to leave you with the impression of that Jesus is here saying, well, you know, it's just a bunch of facts and propositions you can put together, a bit like a formula, and that's the gospel. It's much more than that. And I think I've already alluded to it by the fact that the Spirit powerfully uses it. But I find this word in Acts so interesting, that they will be his witnesses. Because, and I I said I would demonstrate this earlier, it's not just for these 11 guys. Because he says to them, they will be his witnesses. But Jesus also says to Paul, when he converts him dramatically, you will be my witness. Paul uses this word of Stephen, the first martyr, that Stephen was a witness to Christ, even to the point of death. And so this idea of witnessing in Acts and in the New Testament, it's much more than just people who were there and saw the facts and saw Jesus. It's actually people who've seen God's acts beyond that. Namely, I think his saving power is what it's showing. Because that's what Paul witnessed to, Stephen so witnessed God's saving power that he was willing to die for it. It goes beyond just the physical sighting of Jesus. It's also the idea of witnessing, it's experiencing. It's being part of it. It's being drawn into it. And to demonstrate this, I want to read from the Old Testament because not only is this idea, but this very language is in the Old Testament for being able to show that God's power is a saving power. I'm going to read from Isaiah. This is talking to Israel, verse 43, verse 10. You, he says to Israel, are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be another one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. All the way through from the Old Testament, witnesses are people who have seen God's saving power and the fact that he is the only true God, but also he has the power to save and to deliver us. It's those who can believe and then testify to the world that there is only one true God. And he has brought us into his life. He has, by his spirit, made us a new people. He's given us power from on high, from heaven. Just supernatural power from God that doesn't exist in any world system or philosophy or worldview or any collection of facts or even the best societal program. It doesn't have the power to take people from death to life and be united to the holy God the way they were designed to be. It's those who have witnessed that working in their own heart and life. Witness means much more than just seeing the facts. It actually also means it's closely connected to speaking the facts. You even think of the word he uses. Um, it's actually the same word we have for martyr. It's such a powerful word in the Old Testament, sorry in the New Testament, for witness. Think of the legal kind of context that it emerges out of. Not only is it someone who sees, but it's someone who then says, this is what I saw. That's what the Spirit gives us the power to do. Is God saving, say that God saving power is real because it's changed me. Because it's changed people I know. Because their life looked one way and now it looks another. Because they're assured of the real presence of God in their lives. And so it's witnessing to the facts but also to the saving power of God, to the fact that we have experienced that and that is powerful because again our age is obsessed with authenticity and it's a way a lot of um, brands market themselves to people now like this is an authentic product this really comes from the best source you and I have the most authentic thing in the world that life source of God himself, who is the very author of our being, who has given us the life in the air that we breathe, we're in relationship with him, we're connected to him. I want to ask you as well if you've witnessed God's saving power for yourself, because it is the most important thing you will do, it is the saving power that's able to transform your life. It is the saving power that's able to give you confidence in life and death and for eternity. And I have to say it is the reason Jesus came and the reason he is giving this commission to his disciples. So people like you and me could know that saving power. And it is not beyond the reach of any of us. We witness to the facts. We witness to the saving power of God. And lastly and briefly, we witness to the ends of the earth It's very geographical, the question they posed to him. Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And I think we need to go easy on the disciples because it's easy to go, oh, wow, they really understood the point of Jesus and the gospel. It was fair enough. Uh, The understanding was at the time that... uh, The resurrection is going to happen just before the end of the age, and Jesus has been raised from the dead, so it's natural for them to think, "Must be the end of the age. This must be the time." And their reading of the Old Testament was such that they thought God's going to re-establish His throne, uh, David's throne, in Jerusalem, and the nations are going to come from north, south, east, and west to there to worship Him there. Which I think is all true and is all ultimately where history is going. But they misread the times. But you know, fair enough. And Jesus, I said earlier, corrects and rebukes them for that. It's definitely not going to be a military kingdom. It's definitely not going to be a political kingdom in the world's terms. It's not even their assumption that people are going to come. It's that you are going to go. And he flubs the whole thing on his head, as often happens in the kingdom of God. And he says, you are going to be my witnesses and you're going to go out and do this away from this geography that you think is central. And you know, in just a few years' time, in in the year AD 70, Jerusalem was going to be flattened anyway. Um, This was going to become powerfully necessary and true to keep spreading the church and the gospel far beyond this region. It's not a political or a geographical kingdom at all. But he's teaching them more than this. He's saying, you're going to go to Judea. You're going to go to Samaria, which is full of half-breeds and people that Jews don't really like or take seriously as being religiously devoted. It's going to the outcasts. And then it's going to the ends of the earth. It's going to all the pagan people and all the people that are just godless heathens that have no time for the God of Israel. But it's going to go to them it's going to transform them, and you're going to do it. There's nobody else. And I find this challenging, but also encouraging, because, friends, the disciples still don't get it. And you and I don't have to get it completely. We don't always completely get it. We don't know God perfectly. No one does. Neither do they at this point. And God, and so God isn't stopping them or prohibiting them from being his ambassadors. He chooses the weak and the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He puts his glorious treasure of the good news and the gospel in weak earthen vessels just like you and me. And that's how it goes out. And all through Acts, it spreads through people who are called like the apostles to specific jobs. It spreads through ordinary people who have no vocation in the church The the split between um, clergy and common is not really there or very clear in Acts, to be totally honest. It's definitely not as clear as it is in our tradition. Thankful for our tradition in lots of ways. But the point is is that I want to encourage you that this is just within your reach and grasp as it is mine, is to give it to the ends of the earth. And sometimes we could think, Well, proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth, that's for international missionary organizations, that's for charities, and I can't exactly do that, so I'm out. You can take it across the street. You can take it to the person that you know well. You can take it to the people you have relationship with, because all you need to be able to do is know a few of the facts and witness to them. All you need to be able to do is someone who's experienced the transforming, saving work of God and witness to that. And all you need to be do is willing and join in Jesus' mission and call to witness to the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth means, yes, far away. It also means near. It starts near and then it goes far away. It encompasses all of it. The earth is the Lord's. And he's promised that his glory is going to fill the earth. You and I get to play a part in that. May God help us as we look to witness to the facts, to a saving power, and importantly, to the ends of the earth, all for his glory. May he bless his word. Amen.